Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. I want to start uh, today's program by by trying to briefly recount a, a, a very vivid memory from childhood. I was in about fifth grade, and um, I was doing math homework uh, and at, at a desk in my room, and I was just having a heck of a time getting through it. I'd gotten through learning multiplication tables uh, and, and getting through that test, and we had moved on to long division. And I remember sitting at this desk in my room um, with not a very good light, and so it was dark, not a great learning environment, um, really struggling with learning to do long division. And so I snuck into my dad's desk, and he had one of those old calculators that had the, um, the red LED numbers at the top of it. And I remember taking it into my room and checking my homework as I was doing it because I was struggling so much. And I just couldn't get the calculator and my computation and my homework to ever match up. Um, and I ended up in tears uh, in the kitchen with my mom and dad, having them try to help me through it. And that vivid memory is pertinent to our conversation today. My guest today is Conrad Wolfram, co-founder and CEO of Wolfram Research Europe. Conrad is an international proponent of modernizing math and more broadly STEM education to emphasize practical learning opportunities for students in computational and data sciences. His book, The Maths Fix, an educational blueprint for the AI age, is linked in the text accompanying this podcast as a 2020 copyright uh, and a great read. Conrad, thank you so much for being on Teaching Math. It's great to be here. And uh, that was a, a great uh, story to hear as well. And I remember the LED calculators just about. <laughs> you know, the, the great things about those calculators is uh, I can't remember the exact key combination, but you could type it in and turn it upside down and it said hell. And um, that, that really sort of characterized my math experience uh, really up until I took statistics in graduate school. So I think it was it was something that caused your book to resonate with me, and I think it will for a lot of readers. Um, let's start by talking about some broad issues um, that that is in your book, but also you're, you're a, a prolific speaker. Um, and if you if you um, look at either your your spoken uh, messages that are available on the internet, or if you read your book, you talk about maths very broadly. And in fact, the title of your book is M-A-T-H in parentheses S. Can you, can you talk about how you define the domain that you're writing and speaking about? Uh, because I think it's much broader than maybe people would typically think. Yeah, that's a great first question. Um, I think of math or maths, depending on which side of the Atlantic we are, uh, as essentially a problem-solving system, one that's been extremely productive in, in particularly recent human, human history. And it's really, in a sense, a wide domain that enables computation to be applied to, to getting answers, making decisions. And I think when we think about maths in education, it's really important to decide, are we talking about the compulsory subject that we want essentially everyone to be educated in, we think it's critical that they are, or are we talking about a subject that a few people might enjoy, uh, and that's great if they do, but isn't really the thing we need to push for the populace, so to speak. And so when I define maths, and particularly maths and education, I'm talking about this first core computational subject that I, I want to see, because I think otherwise you can't justify everyone doing it. 
uh, in the way that, you know, there are very few subjects at school that everyone has to learn your own language, math, and, uh, you know, you can argue history and things in, in different jurisdictions, but, but very few subjects like that. if, if math is in fact a subject just for its own sake, and I'm very positive about subjects that people enjoy just for their own sake, uh, then I think it's this latter definition, which I, I wouldn't apply. So I think of maths as this all empowering subject that's been behind the last few decades of computational empowerment. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is the thing underneath, you know, our modern social media, underneath engineering, uh, underneath modern biotech advances that, uh, that hopefully we're going to really see the benefit of in the, in the next few weeks and months. Uh, and But I think you've got to be very clear. And one of the problems in thinking about this is the word math or maths isn't actually used in the outside world very much in this larger domain. And so there's a sort of mismatch in naming as well as a mismatch in in breadth of understanding of what what it can do. You you talk um, at several places in the book. I mean, it really permeates the entire thing about a difference between computation and calculation. Can you sort of operationalize the difference between those two terms in the way you think about them? So I think of this computational process or this maths process as, as a four step process in which you start by defining a problem that you're really trying to get an answer to, a decision you're trying to take. Uh, that's sort of step one. Step two is this amazing step of, of abstracting the question. So what does abstracting mean? It means turning a lot of disparate questions you know, that you might have in, in English, for example, and turning them into this fantastic language we have of mathematics. And, and the reason for doing that is because we have hundreds of years of experience of how to get from the question to the answer when it's in this abstract form, because a lot of diff apparently disparate problems end up in the same abstract representation. And so that's what gives maths its tremendous power. So then step two is this abstraction. And then step three is calculating, you know, or computing, you could call it, but I, I like to separate that as calculating. Mm -hmm. And that's where you take this question and you turn it into the answer. Uh, and that's the step that computers are fantastically good at uh, and we should mostly leave them to do. And step four is where you go the other way. You say, well, I got the answer, you know, X equals three. Uh, did that answer the question I defined at the beginning uh, or not? Or maybe I have to, you know, go around another, another loop of this process to get a better answer or I have to redefine things or change my, mm -hmm. my, uh, my conditions. So that's sort of, I, I think of calculating as this, step three of this bigger process and the one that the moment we spend all our effort really teaching people to do at school where i think the bigger process with harder problems is what we need to be focusing on with, with a computer for step three i thought it was um really interesting when you were talking about this you know writing about this in your book and and you started to make a a very i thought brilliant point that really what's happened in your your in my lifetime is that we went from a transition where there was a necessity of students to learn calculation to be able to do math um so you know going back to my story in my bedroom trying to learn long division i had to do that because you know at that time computers were not available now computers are ubiquitous and you sort of talked about this transition uh, where modern technology has 
made the necessity of learning computation much less important for students, um, or calculation, I'm sorry, um, much less important for students. When, you know, culturally, I think that's very fascinating. When do you think that, you know, if you were to think about your lifetime and your experiences, when did that transition in your mind happen when all of a sudden it, we should have started thinking differently about the, the role and the necessity of calculation in our instruction? Well, it certainly, it sort of happens in waves. So I think it's hard to put a one point in time. But I mean, I, I, what I will say is since we started Wolfram Research in 1988, it shifted a huge amount. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously there were computers and calculators before 1988, but certainly they weren't on everybody's desks and everybody's pockets ready to use uh, immediately and easy to use. I, I still think, though, that at each point in time, education has lagged pretty badly. And in fact, I recount in the book that, um, I mean, I was one of the, an early adopter of graphics calculators, for example, but then those were mm -hmm. banned in, in my exams at Cambridge. Uh, and uh, so I think it's been a sort of surprise. I think, you know, you could say that in the last, I mean, what really, I suppose the timing that really crystallized it for me was the release of Wolfram Alpha, which was in mm -hmm. 2009. And that's really when we had people saying, is it cheating to use Wolfram Alpha for my math homework? And that really crystallized in my mind that now was the time for action because it was like, well, it depends what your homework is. <laughs> if your homework is calculating stuff that could be done much better on a computer, then obviously, yes, it is cheating. But why is your homework that? It really ought to be something very different. Uh, I mean, what's dramatic in my view is watching what's happened in the outside world in the last certainly i think since the real rise of mass data science you could say in the last mm -hmm. decade and the chasm now between uh the real world and education is just so dramatic with maths and, and it's kind of like we're running in the wrong direction to keep up so it, it doesn't matter how great the teacher is and, and teachers do a fantastic job often at trying to bridge this chasm trying to show the relevance of the mathematics but actually the subject's drifting off and, and that's a great shame given that there's a real subject out there that we desperately need. Um, one more thing I would say is an interesting way to characterize this is what I call the mechanics of the moment versus the essence of the subject. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really turned this on, so if you think about the history of uh, why this has happened, the hi history of mathematics, um, the limiting step out of the four I mentioned was step three. You know, If you couldn't calculate by hand, it's kind of a waste of time to run the rest of the process because you're not going to get an answer out. And calculating was the most expensive bit of the process because you had to do it by hand. It's very difficult. You had a long learning process for that. So it's completely rational that before computers, people spent all their effort on that. And by the same token, mathematics wasn't used very widely. It was used for bits of physics. It was used for accounting. It was not used in most walks of life. Computers essentially are the most... Uh, amazing mechanization of any subject in history in terms of mathematics. They've turned this four-step process on its head because now the very cheapest step is step three. And it's the other steps that are mostly limiting what we can do with mathematics, not step three. And those are, the, and, and those are still mostly very human steps. And those are the ones, therefore, that we need to spend all the effort on and totally pivot uh, in how we do maths education. You, you used an estimate in your book that 
where you said that that math education spends approximately 80% of the time teaching calculation by hand rather than the asking of the problem and trying to analyze the problem and verify answers. Um, do you stand by that figure? I mean, I know that it doesn't have to be precise, but but conceptually, do you still see that 80% on hand calculation as being the norm in the way that math is taught? Pretty much, yes. I mean, it's hard to measure. And, you know, so I, I would give it wide error bars. Mm -hmm. But, and I think, by the way, it also, well, let me put it another way. I, I was going to say it, it, it increases as you go up the years. I don't think that's quite true. What happens is that very early on in early primary, uh, again, there are some basic calculating skills that I think we still all use, even though we could do it on a calculator or, you know, on, on our phones or whatever, rather than the calculator actually these days. Um, so early multiplication, things like that. And again, these are all mixed together between the calculating and what you mean by multiplication. When you get later on, late primary, uh, you know, secondary and onwards, I think that, it, you know, it, it's actually possibly even more than that. And it's, so to speak, more disconnected from what you need. So there's sort of a dual problem. But I very much do think it's it's somewhere around that level. And one of the problems that governments and curriculum authorities and, and the like around the world have is that they keep trying to solve this with solutions that could only work for 5 or 10% problem. You know, adjustments here and there to the curriculum, things that would be great as an incremental change. Unfortunately, I don't think we're at that point we're at a point of needing a, a fundamental change in order to deal with this this chasm to cross one of the i i, I don't want to overstate uh, and so correct me if you do not agree with this but you know a, a core thesis of your book and and your other um public communication is that we spend too much time on calculation we need to shift and, and talk about the problem so that's the way i would characterize it not everyone would necessarily agree with you. So an analogy that I, I agree with you. So let me say that up front. But but an analogy I was thinking about if I was taking a you know an opposite position in a debate with you is that okay if I'm an English teacher um, or literature you know in writing uh, composition rhetoric um, I would want my students to understand all of the mechanics of uh, precise sentence construction and spelling mm -hmm. and grammar. And I would drill them on that because they would not be able to become effective writers unless they had the tenets. And so does that analogy go to math? Uh, how would you answer using that analogy in math education to say that, well, you have to make students do all this hand calculation so that they understand the mechanics well enough to be able to conceptualize those bigger problems? How, yeah, how would you respond a, to that? It's a great, it's a great sort of set of questions, I, I would almost put it as. So I think the first thing you've got to do is, is look at what do you actually use in real life. Now, if you take the English example, you know, when I write a piece, when I write my book, I do use sentence construction. It's not something that's gone away. I've got to understand you know, how to communicate clearly. And part of that is understanding sentence construction. And in fact, in my particular case, uh, I ended up learning that through Latin, uh, as I in fact go into in the book slightly <laughs> bizarrely. And one can argue plus or minus whether that was good. And I, and I had quite a long discussion about that, that issue, whether the proxy there was good or whether learning English directly would be better. <laughs> but my point is you're directly using it. The problem with the calculating now is you're not directly using it. Nobody really is using long division, not formal mm -hmm. long division. They just don't do that anymore. Uh, and, and even you, even many years ago, it was questionable whether you needed it then. Um, 
So I think when you analyze this, the first thing you've got to say is, okay, what's really happening today in the real world? Therefore, first things first, can I equip people for that those actions they're going to take? Then you need to step one step back and say, okay, in order to do that, are there extra ways I need to learn how I got to that point in order to understand what I'm doing? And here I have a very big disagreement with, with the people who proffer the, the view that um, uh, that you were putting to me. In a sense, what they're typically saying is the way to make not make mistakes and understand the maths you're doing is to understand the mechanics of the machinery inside so that you can achieve that. My argument back is that's not how the world moves forward with automation. So if, in a sense, one of the ways the world has moved forward through industrial revolutions and, and indeed the you know, so-called fourth industrial revolution or, or AI age, as I prefer to call it, that we're they're entering or, or in at the moment, is by having a machine that somebody else has built for you and that you then use. And there are certain aspects you need to know about the parameters of that machine, where it goes wrong, how it fails, how to handle it. Those are very, very different from knowing how the machine is built or being able to make it yourself. And I feel this is exactly the issue with maths education. You know, knowing how to, by hand, run the process of long division, to pick that example up, doesn't mean you really understand about how division works particularly, or that you can do good estimates, or that you can check something that's come out of a computer with millions of digits that have been computed, et cetera, et cetera. You need different skills for that. And actually, by learning, thinking that you're learning somehow how to check the computer or understand the computer by learning the mechanics that you do by hand actually takes away time. And in my I believe often understanding from these other ways to verify and interpret. And I think that's happening a lot in what we do at the moment. I mean, as I often say to people, if, if you compute the structure for a bridge uh, that you want to build as an engineer, for example, uh, no good you know, hoping that you can check your working by doing it all by hand. That's not the way you'll verify. You've got to learn different verification techniques, and we're not really teaching those most of the time. Mm -hmm. So in, in the second section of your book where you, you start to advance your case for how to shift math education, you, you write a lot about the need to contextualize maths education and real-world issues. Uh, essentially, that first question that you um, said was important about defining a problem that you're going to answer. Can you give some examples of, you know, how real world issues um, becomes a much more vibrant way for people to start to attain computational thinking skills? Well, take our current predicament with COVID and the modeling that surrounded that, which is, uh, and I have many differing complaints about what's been done, what's been put out publicly about this. I mean, you know, one of the problems here is we've got, it's it's very hard, to, you know, people, one of the great things, you asked me earlier about how is this revolution, when was this revolution? One of the most bizarre aspects of modern life is most of the public believe one can kind of compute the future in a funny way that they couldn't possibly have thought of 50 or 100 years ago. So we have a situation where people kind of think that there's this fantastic power to, in a sense, predict the future with math. I mean, they wouldn't necessarily say it that way. So we then have a sort of perverse problem where, where I think in some cases math is being overclaimed for. 
It's like there are things that have such big error bars, you just don't know the answer. We don't know many things about how the real life of COVID is going to work. We, we, we certainly didn't back in March, right? Because it was unknown disease. We didn't quite know how it spread. We, you know, so many, many things you don't know. It's no good picking a number and saying we, we can predict it exactly. Although there are very useful things you can do with mathematics. So for example, in education, understand, I mean, one important thing we don't do in mathematics education much is understanding the parameters of what can and can't be achieved with this way of solving problems. And that, to me, is a very useful, important contextualization. Now, in that case, it's quite hard. You know, as, as you know, many experts have been arguing over <laughs> which model, whether the models are accurate and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have many different interpretations of that. Uh, I think if you pick in some simple things, I mean, we built some uh, problem sets and modules, as we call them, for Estonia, uh, who were very interested in this approach. Uh, and had a sort of very enlightened government on, on this uh, way to think about things. And we, we had very open-ended questions. One of the ones we picked, which they liked for teenagers, was, am I normal? Uh, is this a problem that, you know, can mathematics somehow help in figuring out whether you think, you know, what's what's normal, what you think's not so normal? You know, is it foot size or is it height or is it something else? Can you look at the whole data set, in that case for Estonia, and see how you compare? So. What I think is important is rather open-ended questions which we face in life, which might not initially look mathematical. I mean, some other examples might be, uh, you know, how many, uh, how far am I away connected from somebody else on average in, in Facebook, for example? Or is this shape beautiful? I don't think of that as a mathematical problem, but I mean, you know, the Athenians worried about that for building mm-hmm. Parthenon and so forth. So these are all, in my view, very mathematical questions that I think what one wants for most students, most students, I think, like something attached to their life at that moment that they feel has something to do with what they're they're interested in. And starting there, we can show the power of mathematics to help to solve the problem or you know, get them more interest uh, beyond, so to speak, discussing it in English. I mean, discussing it in English is good too, but this is another way of thinking about it, a computational way to think about it. When you were talking in the book about how technology um, sort of literally is a game changer in terms of how students can you know, focus on problems rather than computation uh, or calculation, um, you you brought up the issue of virtualization, which I, I liked earlier. You said that this comes in waves, and I think that you know the rise of AI, the rise of the ability to have um, high fidelity augmented and virtual reality environments is one of those waves that that right now looks like it's going to be a huge one. You know, by the time that it's done, as you think about how virtualization and that next wave of technology can start to come into play, how do you think something like that can advance the way that teachers might think about helping students develop computational thinking skills? Oh, hugely, I think, though we have, the, though I'll put a proviso in a, in a moment. Look, one problem with math, teaching maths in particular, is it's kind of scary if you think you get caught out. I mean, so you need a lot of confidence to be able to attack open-ended problems in a math lesson. And many of our teachers don't have that confidence. I mean, it's sort of a, a vicious circle because they don't have that confidence because they weren't imbued with it, you know, as kids themselves. And it's sort of very obvious if one 
can't figure something out in a math lesson or gets caught out in traditional math lessons we have today. I think that this idea that, so to speak, the teacher has to be the fountain of all knowledge standing at the front of the classroom has been well and truly, uh, and, and I think this is a great advancement, you know, pushed to the push to the ground in the current pandemic. And I think virtualization allows one to look relook at that. I mean, as I say in the book, I think in a way we want teachers to be the kind of CEOs of the classroom. And as a CEO of a company, I'm not, I don't know as well as many of the people who, who I work with, some of the things they know in great detail. I mean, I'm not, the, I don't, I'm not the fountain of all knowledge, so to speak. What I am is somebody who I think can look ahead, zoom in and zoom out of the detail where necessary, guide. Uh, and I think that's the approach we should take. Now, one of the great advantages of virtualization is you can bring experts in in a way that, you know, in a normal traditional classroom, you can't. So, for example, if you wanted to run a class on open-ended coding, you know, for maths, so to speak, you know, how do you attack this open-ended problem that somebody's brought up and try and work through that? It may or may not be that the teacher who's physically there has the the immediate skills to do that. that there's nothing embarrassing. It's just, you know, that there are different skill sets, skill sets, and I think you know the ability to be able to sort of, uh, in you know, an unabashed way, bring people in virtually is one great consequence of of this new world. I think the proviso I have is on this use of AI to drive the pedagogy. I, I think you know if you look into the future, it'll be great. You know, I think we'll have personalized tutors effectively that will assist the human teacher in many, many ways. And we're seeing the start of that. The, the danger is this. At the moment, it's easiest to make computing technology. It deals with very closed-ended questions and answers, the sort of traditional you know, multiple choice questions and, and other yeah. very numerical answers. And so there's a tendency in trying to sort of drive to AI pedagogy uh, that we will somehow drown out the open-ended problem solving that I am particularly pushing for. So on the one hand, I'm really pushing for computers to be available for students as an open-ended tool. On the other hand, I'm concerned about pushing too hard and too quickly on AI help in it, because I'm worried that that will end up with us doing going the opposite way in terms of the subject and ending up with people who are just sort of answering closed-ended questions, which is exactly the direction we don't need to go in. Right, right. You know, and, and the way that you talk about that makes me think that if I were a teacher and I was trying to find ways in my own classroom to implement the the pedagogy that you're describing, um, I would want that to be very interdisciplinary. In other words, you know, I think traditionally we've had a hard time connecting math because because of its focus on comp, uh, on calculation to other subjects. And and it seems like if I was doing it well in the way that you describe it. Um, my my math education would also involve communication education would also involve writing would involve you know ideas of rhetoric and persuasion uh, do you agree with that 100% and i would reinforce that as well in the following way if we think maths is this foundational core subject you know which pretty much across the world it's considered to be as i said earlier along with your own language uh if it isn't doing that job if it isn't intertwined with all the other subjects why is it one of these core subjects mm -hmm. so and and you see that as you you know point out with english you know speak learning your own language english 
absolutely that's intertwined. You don't stop learning how to write English and history. Uh, it's very much intertwined. You're expected to improve your essay writing skills, so to speak, uh, as you go up the years in all your subjects, not just in English. And as you correctly say, I mean, th this this hasn't happened. At least one of the key reasons it hasn't happened is because it can't until you have computers in the math, because the mathematics in the real world wasn't really used for these other subjects until mechanized computing. You couldn't do, you know, sort of data science on history or computational history, as I would now call it. You couldn't do computational biology. They didn't exist as subjects because they've relied on mechanized computing. So one of the things I've often said is if you remove the computer from math education, you are essentially removing almost all the context. The the last line of um, questions um, that I'd like to focus on is is sort of the roadmap for change that you lay out in part three of the book. Obviously, so so I want to crystallize a couple of things that you've said here, but but you also um, lay out in the book very well. You are not advocating for an incremental change. You you really would like to upend the system and really focus it on you know modern problems and how computational thinking can be brought to bear to help people understand and solve those problems. So that's important for listeners to understand. You you are asking for a revolution in math education. That's a big problem. <laughs> so yeah. how, how do you start biting off bits of that apple to achieve a revolution, knowing that it's a huge problem that you there, there are no magic solutions where you can wave a wand and, you know, cause that change worldwide, you know, in, in a matter of a year or, or even a decade for that matter. We would want to, but that's hard. How, how do yeah. you start going through that? I think you've got to start. I think you first, you've got to start from several angles at the same time. I don't think one pressure point is going to work, but I do think there are some pivotal points some pivotal issues that can perhaps unlock some of the others. And, and one thing I describe a lot, as you know, in the book is I talk about the ecosystem of education being stuck and particularly of subject change. Um, and I compare that a little bit to how it was very hard in most countries to start a company back in the sort of 1970s. And there was a change uh, to that, actually largely led, led, I think, by the US, you know, regulatory changes, of, you know, venture capital funding being available and so forth that totally started to unlock that to the point now where even, you know, even political systems and things that you would think wouldn't want to really push private enterprise are falling over themselves to say they're great places for startups. So I think several levels to peel away. I mean, I think at one level there is you know, the fact that we're having this conversation and I've had many others a bit like this. I think the mood music is starting to change. People are starting to realize there is a problem. And that's sort of a forerunner to trying to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. I think the pressure is massively mounting. I mean, when I look back even five years ago, you know, people, are, there's a huge problem with maths. I mean, around the world, it's and it's become more and more evident in all the ways I describe it, it's not matching up and people are starting to get more and more sort of panicked about it. So that in itself will push some level of change. In the end, exams and assessments and particularly ones for entering college, I think are a pivotal sort of point of action. And it's interesting to note that, you know, again, it's funny how these things move because the pandemic with all its, you know, horrific consequences may actually produce some some positive ones too. And I notice, uh, at least for the moment, the abandonment of SATs in California is an interesting step for admission to many of the universities, as I understand it there. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and again, you know, it's a micro step, but potentially that opens up more freedom for what what admissions are allowed, and in, 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 therefore that opens up potentially more uh, ability to substitute, uh, you know, additional or alternative subjects. I do think early college is a very interesting. Uh, place to look at particularly sort of first year what in britain anyway we'd call first year college mm-hmm. um because i think what we're seeing around the world is many many colleges are saying we're getting these students many you know totally a grade math students we put them into a i don't know life sciences course and the first data problem we give them they can't do anything they just don't understand what to do and we've pretty much got to start again so one of the things we're working on quite hard as well as with school level is to help colleges by saying we've actually got a program we've started developing to help with exactly that which is you know this computer-based maths program and we want to work with those colleges to see whether we can implement that to in a sense be a a sort of transitional maths uh, from school but then i think after a time if we can successfully do that particularly in the subjects that were not traditionally computational I mean, subjects like physics have, of course, been very closely connected with the maths curriculum for a long time. So in a sense, the maths curriculum serves them somewhat better. But any of the modern subjects, uh, you know, modern, sorry, newly computational subjects uh, or, or subjects with newly computational elements, that, that doesn't really, isn't really in there at all. So I think there's a great job of having universities, colleges really think about their admission and help them to do that once we've got courses in the first year i think that match then we've got to start pushing back from that in different jurisdictions and saying well hang on just a moment if that really worked in your first year why aren't you admitting people on the basis of of assessments beforehand that match more closely to that to Mm -hmm. try and unlock that ecosystem one of the things i discuss quite a lot in the book is (laughs) are we starting a new subject or are we reforming the old subject and there are huge pluses and minuses. I think this will work slightly differently in different places. Um, I mean, I would probably tend to err in the direction at this moment of saying we probably need to make a foundation of a newer subject that mm-hmm. is in some sense in parallel. Uh, just to finish, though, I mean, there are on, on this point, there are there are some immediate practical things I think teachers can do on the ground. Obviously, if you're a teacher in a school right now, there's a limit to what you can do, which is really frustrating. Um, one of the things I think is, I mean, we produced a poster of our full step process. And I do think the more that students understand, even in their current curricula, which step they're operating within, you know, are they in the calculation step or are they trying to define the problem? And if so, how are they trying to interpret? I think the better they can understand that, the the earlier, more easily they can substitute in the computer when that becomes available. So I think there are steps you can take now to improve the situation, even if we're not doing the wholesale reform that I really would like. Yeah, you know, reminds me of my evolution um, in math, a horrible math student all the way through my entire undergraduate education, actually. Um, College algebra was a real stumbling block, and and I got to visit that class more than once as a result of that. But I ended up being a statistics teacher, you know, in, in my professional career now. And the key point of that that happened was that I understood that, you know, that programs like SPSS or SAS could be used to do all the calculation. And I just had to understand the issues that I was asking questions and answering questions about. And, you know, I think that really underscores what you're saying in terms of 
um, how we should be teaching computational thinking. And when I teach stats now, um, I spend very little time on hand calculation, but rather how to interpret what an R value is or, or yep. you know, significance values, what those actually mean and effect sizes. And those are far more important, I think, in terms of how to help students advance. Well, Conrad, it's been wonderful talking with you. And um, I do think that the blueprint that you lay out in, in your book and in your other public communications on this topic is something that all types of educators should listen to because um, administrators need to understand this, uh, policymakers need to understand it. And I think that teachers can start doing things in their own classrooms. And I know that many of them are trying to do that, um, that starts to move in this direction. So thank you for being an advocate for helping um, our students learn more effectively. Thank you for a very interesting conversation. Absolutely. It is my pleasure. Conrad Wolfram is co-founder and CEO of Wolfram Research Europe. Uh, as he mentioned, um, there's a great app called Wolfram Alpha that if you've not explored that, I've been using it for a number of years and it's fun to play with, but it's also a great teaching tool. Um, you can find links to his book, The Maths Fix, in the text accompanying this podcast. And I would strongly encourage everyone to pick it up and give it a read. It's a great read, but it also is very thought-provoking in the way that we should be teaching, I think, not just math, but really many of our subjects. Wolfram, have a great day and best to you and stay in good health. Thanks. That's great. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. This program is produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search for Teaching Matters Podcast and send us a message. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Have a great day and stay safe.